Today on Blue 58, what would happen if the Packers just fired Joe Barry? Who would take his place? And is the real problem in Green Bay some underperforming stars? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, and I am happy to be with you here for another episode. As you may have guessed from the intro there, we're doing some questions today. Got a whole bunch of them from listeners that have been piling up for a couple weeks, and because we've been in and out over the past couple weeks a little bit, We've got a lot of them to answer. And on a programming note, since we're also going to be off next week, I figured now is as good a time to any as any to get to as many questions as we could. This is just a normal scheduled absence. We had planned to be off this next week for a while. Uh, got a family vacation coming up. We're very excited. going to be a good time to get together with all of my wife's side of the family for a whole week. It's going to be a great time, but it does take us off the podcast for a week. So we've got some stuff coming up. Uh, that is pre-recorded. Your podcast feed will still be full next week, just won't have a preview, but we should be back, fingers crossed, and everything else goes according to plan after the Broncos game for a recap of that one. Questions today come primarily from the Power Sweeps Discord server, of which you can become a member if you are a supporter on Patreon or Discord. Head to patreon.com slash thepowersweep or thepowersweep.substack.com for more information about how, how all of that works. But you'll get access to the Discord server as well as some weekly bonus content if you choose to support there. So let's dive into the questions. Our first one comes to us. Actually, it's a, it's a two-pack from James Herring uh, via Patreon today. Basically, and I'm condensing down James's remarks. We, he and I have had a little bit of a back and forth, uh, had a, a couple long, well-thought-out questions, but they boiled down to really two things. First, fundamentals, why don't the Packers play with more of them? Blocking, tackling, timing, all of those fundamental aspects of playing football, why aren't the Packers better at them than that? And secondly, when the Packers talk about needing to play with more fundamentals, needing to be better in the run defense, needing to do stuff like that, why is it that Matt LaFleur just gets to say those things week in and week out and people don't ask him more pointed questions about how exactly he's going to accomplish that? Two good questions. The first one, I don't have a firm answer for, but I have a suspicion, and I think it's largely because of practice. After the 2011 CBA, the way that you could practice changed dramatically. Your practice time in season and out of season was cut, especially out of season, it was cut dramatically. And the way that you can practice in season also changed a lot too. There are now well, there have been for the last 12 years now some severe limits on in-season padded practices. You get like 12 or 16 or something like that for an entire season. And when your team is banged up, like the Packers have been so far this year, most coaches just aren't inclined to use them. In fact, from what I know, Matt LaFleur isn't really big on padded practices just in general, uh, especially in season. So that is one hit against you, one notch against you, one mark against you, I guess. If you're trying to play more fundamentally, you're just not really playing football in the same way if you're not practicing in pads. You just really can't do it the same way. On top of that, when you've got as much injury flux as the Packers have had, you're not getting guys into their normal spots the way that they normally are. So uh, take the offensive line, for example. How many different offensive line configurations have the Packers had just through these first five weeks of the season. It's been a bunch. I, I didn't go back and look at every one of them, but it, it's been a lot. They've had a lot of guys in and out of the lineup. That, plus not really practicing quote-unquote normal football, 
kind of makes it hard to do the fundamentally sound things, the blocking, the tackling, all of those things. There is a trade-off there. Personally, I think the net gain of not getting guys beat up in season, having them fresher for Sunday, is probably worth missing a few tackles here and there. Even just two years ago, the Packers were the best tackling team in the league in 2021, or right up there. It was it was way up near the top. They played really, really well, were fundamentally sound in those aspects, and the practice conditions were no different then than they are now. So it, it doesn't have to be as much of a drawback, but when you start adding in some of these younger other factors and then throw a young and inexperienced team on top of that, well, you can see how that would all add up to a not very fundamentally sound football team. The second question is one of my favorite and pet topics here. Why don't people ask Matt LaFleur more pointed questions? By people, we really mean the, the Packers media, the people who cover the Packers on a regular basis. So why is that? First, in the media's favor here, when people say pointed questions of Matt LaFleur, some of the questions that I've seen people wanting Matt LaFleur to ask or wanting to ask Matt LaFleur are just kind of nonsense questions, uh, just really intense confrontational questions that are just going to get you more laughed at by both LaFleur and your colleagues than, than anybody else. I don't have an example off the top of my head, but some people really want people to get aggressive in press conferences. That is you kind of can't do that as a reporter, though I get the urge that you would want to do that from the outside looking in, be super confrontational, really, really stick it to them. However, there is a, a different answer that is probably more explanatory here as to why they don't ask more pointed questions. Even if you don't want to be more, more like aggressive or confrontational with somebody like Matt LaFleur, the reason, there are reasons that people don't ask pointed questions, but that doesn't mean they have to ask bad questions. For instance, James in his his question asked, you know, Matt LaFleur is always saying we got to do better on in our run defense. We can't keep doing the same thing again and again and again. He asked me, why doesn't someone ask him, you keep saying we need to do better in the run game. What are some of your ideas for doing better in the run game or in the in run defense? What do you want to see the Packers improve on and how are you going to make that happen? That, I think, is a better question than, what do you think of the run defense? Well, he probably thinks it's bad. That would, that would be my guess, is most of the, you know, he, he sees that it's not doing particularly well. If I was the head coach, I would want to do better there too. So when you come in and ask him something like, what do you think of the run defense? Or just kind of some lazy questions, you're, you're going to get an answer, but it's not going to be a super informative answer. So why do people ask questions like that? That is the real question here. And the real question is that a lot of reporters don't necessarily care about the answer. They just want him to say something. Why is that? Because they have a deadline and a story that they need to write. It's not always about covering the team. It's about doing your job. And your job is to produce the content. Your job is not necessarily to cover the team like super in-depth. It's, it's a it's a situation of misaligned incentives or, or differently aligned incentives. Fans want information. Reporters want to do their job. Now, some reporters do want the information. They really want to know what's going on with the Packers. But there are some reporters that are more interested in just being able to get a quote. And here's a really easy way to tell who's who in those sorts of situations. Think back to when Ted Thompson was the Packers general manager. Who complained the loudest and the longest about Ted Thompson not taking questions from reporters in season? 
those are the people that you have to wonder why they really want to hear from from the general manager or whatever. Those are the people that I think are are more prone to asking some of these lazier questions. Why? Well, when you have a, a press conference as a reporter, and I know this because I used to be one, what do you have for sure? When you have a press conference from somebody in a leadership position of an organization that people cares about, if they hold a presser and you are there, you have a guaranteed story for that day. No matter what happens in the presser, no matter what they say, you can write about that you were there, who else was there, what they talked about, pull two or three quotes, bang, you got a story right there. Your work is done for the day and you can say to your editor, look, got a story, we covered this. It's easy work. That's why those lazy questions get asked. That's why people demand to hear from the general manager in season, even if they know that the general manager has nothing to say. Now, to be fair, part of a reporter's job is to go there and write down the things that the guy says or the girl or whoever, whenever, just to, to write down what they say. That's what being a reporter is and getting them to say the dumb stuff on the record, the, the basic stuff, you know, what do you think of the run defense? Oh, the run defense is bad. Coach says the run defense is bad. I wrote a story about how coach says the run defense is bad. That's part of the job, but you can do that job better and more interestingly. It's just that a lot of reporters are just like most people. They just want to get the job done. Jim from Lacrosse and our friend from our Discord server, Serb Packer, uh, have two kind of related questions. Jim, like James before him, Jim from Lacrosse writes in a, a long question that kind of culminates with why not fire Joe Barry right now? If the Packers know that this isn't going well, and he may not be back next year anyway, why not just fire him now and get the process started? And related to that, uh, Serb Packer asks, do the Green Bay Packers have an inside candidate for the defensive coordinator job? If you if Joe Barry gets fired in the middle of the season, who takes his place? So first question first there, why don't the Packers fire Joe Barry now? This is something we've talked about over the past couple of years. For one thing, it's, it's just kind of something that isn't done for practical matters. You got to have a defensive coordinator. A defensive coordinator gets more money than a position coach. If you fire your defensive coordinator, he still is getting paid by, by his contract. And most teams just don't want to pay two coaches at once for more time than they have to. So if you fire the guy, you're going to have to pay two guys. So you don't, you just don't fire him. That was something that you know, the Packers, because of his contract situation, when the Packers fired Mike McCarthy in 2018, they still paid him for all the next year because that was what his contract said. And unless you're getting fired for cause, you still got to keep getting paid a lot of times. It's also really hard to bring in an external candidate during the season because there's a whole bunch of different terminology and installs and all of those different wheels moving that make it a really difficult process. On top of that, a lot of guys want to put their own guys, their own colleagues or friends or old buddies or guys that played for them or guys that they played with into position coach jobs, and that is impossible to do in season. Right now, the Packers have nine defensive coaches on staff from the, the, the coordinator down to their quality, quality control staff, nine different guys working on defense. Imagine the chaos that would ensue, even if you did it like the day after, Tuesday morning after the Monday night game, the Packers have their longest stretch without a, a game this season. Even if you had fired it, fired Joe Barry right then and brought in a new guy Tuesday afternoon, if you were turning over the whole defensive staff, which you would probably want to do if you want to really make this a clean break from the Barry era, and really make a break in season, you have to replace not just your coordinator, 
But everybody else, if you're going with an external candidate, that's a whole bunch of lives to uproot. That's a whole bunch of guys you got to get in and get in place. And then you've got to get everybody on defense up to speed. It's just the lift there is too heavy, just too hard to do. So that's why it doesn't happen in season, especially if they're going to bring in an outside guy. Okay, then. So if the Packers fired Joe Barry, what if they hired an inside guy? Who would it be? Just looking at the seniority and looking who's been with this organization the longest, I think you've really got two options here. First, Jerry Montgomery, the defensive line coach and run game coordinator, and linebackers coach Kirk Olivadotti. It's not a great list. Montgomery has been around since 2016, and the Packers really have never had a spectacular defensive line in that entire run. I think there's a fair question to be asked of Mr. Montgomery, what is it you would say you do here? And he would probably say, well, I coach up the bums that you give me outside of Kenny Clark, which I think is a fair thing to point out because he really hasn't had a whole lot of help for Kenny Clark the entire time he's been here other than Mike Daniels. And that was not for a very long time. And then you've got Kirk Lividati, who's probably got the most, other than Jason Rebervich, the pass rush specialist, probably has the most solid position group right now. You've got Devondre Campbell, you've got Quay Walker, And you've got um, Isaiah McDuffie and Eric Wilson, who have played top to bottom pretty solid, I think, as a group. Um, Those are probably your internal candidates. Montgomery, just because he's been here the longest. Olivadotti, just because he coaches an important position and has has been around for a while in Green Bay, too. He came in in 2019, I believe. So those are your two internal candidates, I would guess, if you wanted to go that direction in season. I don't know if Joe Barry gets fired in season, especially when he says, look, you know, I've put you in a position to win to a couple times. You know, we had the collapse in Atlanta, but you get like two first downs. That game's over too. And we helped you win against the Saints. So you can thank us for that one too. And then uh, this last game, I mean, I don't know what else you want from us. We held them to 17 points. Uh, yeah, we did have the two missed field goals in there, but hey, you got to hold up your end of the bargain too. If you manage to score 18 points, you win. Um, I, I think it'd be tough to really make a, a firing case in season. I don't think, I think there is a case there. I think it's hard to get re- there really strong, uh, get a really strong case there. Related to linebackers, it is, it's good that we talked about Kirk Olivadotti there for a second, because I wanted to add to a take that I, I made after the Lions game, maybe not one of my stronger ones this season. We talked after that game about how the Packers' 2022 first round kind of had a rough night, despite Quay Walker's, what was it, 19 tackles, despite Devontae Wyatt getting a sack. It wasn't like a spectacular night for those two guys. And a listener whose name I'm not going to attempt to say, uh, but they are from Finland. He's from Finland. I, You know who you are if you wrote in. A very well-thought-out email said that may have been a little bit of a knee-jerk take. Maybe it was. Uh, but I kind of want to add a little context to to that too, because it, it's possible just talking late night after a primetime game, I did not fully articulate what I wanted to say there. What I said after the game is when Quay Walker, you know, Quay Walker had 19 tackles, but it feels like a lot of times he, he piles up stats, but it doesn't necessarily feel like he's making a huge impact. Um, there's more to it than that. Let's put it that way. And I should have said more of that than I did. So I thought just in the spirit of answering that a little bit more fully, we would kind of use that email to spring into a bigger conversation about Quay Walker and where he is right now. So this is kind of a question from Finland and a kind of a question for myself too. Basically, what do we think of Quay Walker right now? We're 22 games in, five games this year, 17 games last year. 
what's the deal with Quay Walker? Overall, I'm not sure. I would say the grade right now is incomplete. I think there are things to like about him. I think there are things to not like about him. So let's dive into that a little bit. And I think there are some interesting and unusual kind of extenuating factors that come in with Quay Walker too. So overall, it's been a little bit hit and miss. He's come along a little bit slowly, especially in the early portions of last year. You look at his pro football focus grades, and I don't have the full averages because uh, I didn't input the grades from this past game when I was prepping for this today. But at, but through four weeks, his average pro football focus grade for his the first 21 games of his career was a 59. The median grade was 62. He is poorest against the run. That's where he grades out the lowest. Uh, on average, about a 55, a median grade of a 60. Pretty darn good as a tackler. Uh, consistently grades pretty high. Has some bad games in there, but who doesn't? Also pretty good in coverage. It's concerning to me that we are um, 22 games in now, and as of last week, 21 games in, and we've already had to have discussions three times about Quay Walker saying some version of of standing in a locker room after the game saying, yeah, that was a really dumb thing that I did out there, but I'm going to learn from it and not do it again. We had that after the Bills game last year, after the second Lions game last year, and after the leaping scenario um, in week four. It it was not great. It is a, It was a misfire on, on three occasions for Walker, and we need him to learn some of those things a little bit faster. But are there good things out there too? Yes, I think there are. And I think there is reason to believe that we really actually haven't seen Quay Walker how the Packers envisioned him in the first place. So even if he's not great against the run, is there evidence that he's doing some good things to begin with? I think there are. One of the quick and dirty ways you can look at who's making plays in the run game is by going to Pro Football Reference using their stat head tool. And it's not quite Pro Football Focus's stat or stops stat. It's a, I forget exactly how they define it, but a good play in the run game, they grade out as a stop. I'm not exactly sure what it is exactly, but it's an important play against the run. A quick and dirty way to kind of do your own version of that is by using the stat head tool and seeing who has created a tackle or, or, or had a tackle on a play where the opposing team either gains no yards or one gains up to like a single yard or loses yards on the play basically stopping the opposing offense for a yard or less. Who's making plays in those situations? In Green Bay so far in 2023, Quay Walker is second on the team in those kinds of tackles. Kenny Clark has 10. uh, Quay Walker has nine. So among the guys making those kinds of plays, Quay Walker is right up there. In 2022, he was again second on the team. Preston Smith had 28. Quay Walker had 20. How does that compare to some pretty good linebackers from the the recent past? Well, in his all-pro season in 2021, Devondre Campbell had 20 such tackles. And going back a little bit further, just for comparison, in 2019, Blake Martinez had 19, and he had 24 in 2018. So he's right up there with guys who have been productive against the run for the Packers in the past. Not a perfect measure, but just kind of helps you ballpark where Quay Walker is making plays and how frequently. He's right up there with the other defensive leaders with the Packers. Related to that, it's not a hard and fast thing. It's not a something you can really quantify, I think, in a meaningful way. 
But based on what we know about Quay Walker, he is a big physical presence in the middle. It doesn't always show up because of, of misreads and things like that, but he is the biggest, strongest, fastest linebacker the Packers have had in a good long while. Let's put it that way. Thinking of a comparison to Quay Walker in Green Bay is is hard because they really haven't had an off-ball linebacker like him before. Devondre Campbell, just from a, you know, a size and athleticism perspective, is probably about the closest thing in the 21st century. And I think Walker is a different breed even than, than Campbell is. That doesn't count for nothing. There's a double negative for you. That's not nothing. That counts for something, is my point. And even if he is imperfect in some areas, it's hard to get too down on him just because of, well, of that. There's nobody else like him on the Packers' defense, even if Devondre Campbell is healthy. And speaking of that, I think there is a case to be made that we really haven't seen the quote-unquote Quay Walker experience the way the Packers envisioned it because Devondre Campbell has been hurt. Think back to last season. Campbell is coming off his all-pro season of 2021. The Packers draft Quay Walker to kind of be his sidekick, gives them two really versatile pieces, lets them play big in ways that they couldn't play before. Theoretically, you're going to be able to compete with some of these bigger, stronger offenses that are emerging in the NFL just because you have two big, strong linebackers out there. You don't necessarily have to change personnel as much to keep up with them. And even if they go fast, well, Quay Walker's pretty fast too. He can keep up with your opposing team when you go when they go fast and light because he is fast and still pretty big. That's a great thing to have. Unfortunately, we haven't gotten to see Quay and Devondre together and healthy all that much. If you take the first, say, eight games of last season as kind of a wash because Quay Walker is getting his feet wet, he's a rookie, he's playing a, a position where you've got to process a whole bunch of things at once. It's a challenging position to play, perhaps the hardest one on defense from a mental perspective. And in addition to the physical stuff you have to do, I was talking with somebody in our Discord server about this today. You know, people will say that cornerback is super hard for rookies to play. That is true, but the day one, and I said that that is true, but the day one job description for rookie cornerbacks never includes taking on a 330-pound guard in the hole just so somebody else can make the tackle. I mean, there are situations as a linebacker where your entire job is, all right, the hole opens up there. Here comes the pulling guard coming downhill with a full head of steam and bad intentions. I know Devondre's back there somewhere. I got to step up and I got to take this hit so somebody else can make the tackle. It's part of the gig. That's a pretty tough thing to ask of anybody, much less a, a rookie linebacker. Anyway, you take those first eight weeks as a bit of a wash. Beyond that, there are nine games to end 2022 and then five games this year where Devondre Campbell and Quay Walker are, are together and healthy. That makes 13 games. But wait, Devondre Campbell missed some games toward the middle of last season, and he really has never been 100% healthy this season either. He's missed a couple games, and the games that he has played, he hasn't finished or hasn't been fully available because he's been banged up there too. So really, all you have of a relatively seasoned Quay Walker together and together with a Devondre Campbell who is healthy and ready to go, 
or close to it, is five games at the end of 2022. And that actually coincides with some of when the Packers were playing their best defensive football last year. Maybe that's a coincidence. Maybe it's because, as we pointed out last year, they were playing some some fairly bad quarterbacks. But it also coincides with when Quay Walker had some experience under his belt and Devondre Campbell was there beside him, somewhat healthy, the closest to fully healthy he's been in their time together. I think that is worth considering whatever your take is on, on Quay Walker. I am still a, a pretty big fan of his. I really hope he works out. I think it is um, still an open question about whether or not that was a good idea to take him where they took him. But he's a very interesting and intriguing player, and he brings a lot of things to the defense that we haven't seen in Green Bay in a long, long time. Continuing on into our questions, Gabe's MSU11 asks, and is there any logical way David Bakhtiari is on the team next year? It seems like the Packers have no reason they should risk the cap uh, cap hit of not cutting him, and likely there isn't a benefit for Bakhtiari to negotiate a new deal for less money. Am I missing something, or is this for sure the end of him in Green Bay unless he agrees to a very favorable Packers deal out of nothing but loyalty? I think it's really hard to envision a situation outside of what our question asker lays out here where Bakhtiari is in Green Bay next year. It's tough to to come up with a set of circumstances that makes sense for both sides. Unless Bakhtiari takes a huge pay cut and they can do some things with the cap, I don't even know what those things would be, his cap number is just so prohibitively large that you almost have to move on, even if he can come after the whole deal for like a, an, an injury grievance or something like that. You almost got to take the chance that you can free up any cap space at all just to get out from under that for a guy that at best you're going to have question marks going into next season for. Right now we don't know if this surgery thing is going to work or if it does work when he's going to be available or if he will ever be available again, even if it does work. I mean, Based on what we've seen so far, you would have to think it's an open question that even if they think the surgery is successful, whether or not it will remain so. This is what, the third or fourth time they think, yep, we've absolutely got this. We got it sorted out. Because you had the initial surgery, he comes back, his knee balloons up. You got to have procedures in season in 2020, what was it, 2021? Um, just to get him back for week 18 and the disappointment that followed. He had that cleanup procedure in season. It, it didn't really work because he had to have another one after, I think, that the 2021 season. And now he's up to, he had a, a, a scope prior to, what was it, week four, week three. And then he's going to have this other surgery. So that's at least three different, the initial one, the follow-up, the follow-up to the follow-up. This one in season now paired with the, the next surgery. So three or four rounds of surgery, depending on how you count, where they said, yep, this is for sure going to be the answer. I mean, fool me once, fool me twice, fool me three times, fool me four times. At what point are you just the sucker because you, you're betting on something that doesn't seem likely to fix anything? And, and don't take me, don't, don't take that as me saying, you know, David Bakhtiari is trying to sucker the Packers here. I think he genuinely has given it all he's got to try to get back on the field. Go look up what ACL tear rehab looks like sometimes. See if that looks like a fun thing for you to, you know, fake or pretend to go through as you're really not doing it. It's just not something that you would do. It It's extremely painful if you're going to try to get back to 
high level um, athletic performance. It's just a tough thing to do. So really, I don't see a set of circumstances that gets him back to Green Bay next year outside of a significant pay cut there. I think that if he is determined to continue his NFL career, he might want to bet on somebody giving him more guaranteed money in free agency than he is likely to make from the Packers on a on a reduced deal. That seems like the best way to do it. And the chance to start fresh somewhere else if if he's just tired of dealing with things in Green Bay. You know, the questions, the the pressure, um, just having that albatross of being the guy who signed the huge deal and then his leg fell off um, and people taking that all sorts of different ways in Green Bay gets to be, it's got to be a little bit of a drag after a while. So I, I wouldn't be, if it was me, I would want to consider at least playing somewhere else, even if he wants to finish his career in Green Bay. Carl Anderson asks, what sounds like initially a really pointed question, but comes from a place of curiosity here. What is it that Adam Stenovich does in Green Bay? What is his contribution to the offense and its identity? This is not necessarily a knock on him. I just realized that I don't know. Maybe it's me not paying enough attention, but it seemed to be more clear with Nathaniel Hackett as offensive coordinator. It did seem to be a little bit more clear with Nathaniel Hackett, doesn't it? But uh, Stanovich does have a role in Green Bay, and I think it it basically, and this is going to sound dismissive, but it comes down to being a glorified offensive line coach. He's going to, if Matt LaFleur is constructing the pass game, working very closely with Jordan Love and all sorts of those things, Stanovich's domain is the run game and making sure the offensive line just kind of hums along. That was his area of expertise. That's where he comes from. That's his background. That's what he did in Green Bay prior to getting the offensive coordinator job when Nathaniel Hackett left. What I don't know about Stenovich is what he does in terms of the game planning and play selection sort of things. When Hackett was here in Green Bay, not here, I'm not in Green Bay, when Hackett was with the Packers, he famously had control over the red zone or gold zone uh, packages in Green Bay. So he helped design those packages, was was instrumental in selecting the calls, and for a time it worked really, really well. The Packers were great in the red zone for a while there under Lafleur and Hackett, but it, it kind of fell off a while as the Packers' office personnel started to deteriorate a little bit. But I don't know where Stenovich fits into that. I do know that he does a lot with the offensive line and kind of oversees that part of it, um, along with doing some stuff with the run game. Uh, in his capacity as offensive coordinator. In a related question, Discord user No Misery asks um, asks this question. As you mentioned it, talking about Hackett and Stenovich, our offense got worse after Hackett left. Maybe Matt LaFleur needs a better counterpart for him to elevate the offense. How do the track records and biographies from Hackett and Stenovich compare to each other? Are their offensive philosophies similar or different? Their offensive philosophies are at least a little bit different because they kind of come from different branches of the West Coast offensive tree. Hackett, though the West Coast offense and the Shanahan and I guess Bill Walsh branches, if you want to kind of divide it up that way, though those branches are even interrelated, those branches bore different fruit. And Nathaniel Hackett comes from his dad's branch of that tree, Paul Hackett, though Hackett... um, did have some influence on other branches of the tree, most notably Mike Shanahan and Kyle Shanahan, specifically one one version of their play-action approach. Um, but Hackett, the younger, comes from more the Hackett and Walsh side of things. Stenovich cut his teeth in Houston uh, with Matt LaFleur, 
um, Gary Kubiak, the more Shanahan specific version of the of the offensive scheme tree. So background wise, that's where things break down a little bit. Hackett also had coordinator experience and quarterbacks coach experience with the the Jacksonville Jaguars before having coordinator experience at Syracuse. Then he got the job in Green Bay with Matt LaFleur. Stenovich has been kind of an offensive line guy all the way up, has worked with Matt LaFleur in a couple different spots now, got the job as the offensive line coach in Green Bay when Matt LaFleur took over in 2019. So Hackett has a much more traditional path to an offensive coordinator sort of gig than Stenovich does, but Stenovich has risen through the ranks kind of right along Matt LaFleur along the way. And they, they even had a, a brief overlap in Houston uh, when Matt LaFleur was a coach and Stenovich was a player. But um, that is the extent, I think, uh, of their overlap there. But they kind of got on the same page from there and have, in a way, grown up together. Scott Westfall asks, uh, I think we're, or kind of states here, I think we're beginning to see why Rodgers hated playing with rookies and inexperienced receivers. The receiving core is becoming a concern. I don't believe going with the youth-only approach to rebuilding is very effective. A balanced roster should include experience as one of the requisite. This seems like it should have been very obvious before the season started because, unfortunately, it's very obvious now. Yeah, if you've been a longtime listener to Blue 58, you heard this dating back to 2018. Uh, back when the Packers did their triple dip at receiver that year, uh, drafting Jamon Moore, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, and Equinemia St. Brown, one of the things that I was saying again and again was that the Packers were going to need a veteran at some point to kind of bridge the gap while these guys came along. The Packers never got it, though we threw out every name under the sun, Odell Beckham Jr., Antonio Brown. Uh, people tried to to get veteran help to the Packers, but the Packers said, basically, we're good you saw this very scenario kind of bear itself out or, or or build itself to this point basically since then. The Packers rested on their laurels after making three-day three picks at receiver back in 2018 and really never added anything of substance to the pipeline after that. You had other pass catchers drafted like Jay Sternberger or um, Josiah DeGuara technically or Amari Rodgers. None of them has really panned out. And the Packers were left with a pretty bare cupboard after an entirely preventable situation played out with Devontae Adams. Now imagine a situation, and it would be a little bit different because the Packers acquired Christian Watson in part because of the draft capital they got in the in the Devontae Adams trade. But imagine a situation where Devontae Adams is here and almost everything else is the same. Or maybe you don't get Christian Watson, or maybe you pick another receiver later in the second round because Christian Watson comes off the board. You have Devontae Adams, but then you have Romeo Dobbs and maybe another second round receiver from 2022, uh, Jaden Reed in there as well. That is an entirely different group because of how people get to learn differently or say that Alan Lazard had stuck around or say that somebody else, maybe that they drafted in 2020 or 2021, say there was a guy like T Higgins there uh, in 2022. It, it would, you'd have a different quarterback situation here or, but um you know, your receiver room would look markedly different now just because you were, you've been growing it for some time. And I think that's a real takeaway as the Packers deal with some growing pains here that you, you need veterans and you can't keep missing in the draft if you're looking to build long term because otherwise you really have to do a complete hard reset and um, it, it ends up costing you time. The Packers are going to have to bottom out here um, at receiver before anything gets better. 
And we are probably in some version of the bottoming out stage of that right now. Nick Dane asks, it seems like Keyshawn Nixon is routinely returning kickoffs from deep in the end zone. Oftentimes it seems that he doesn't get to the 25-yard line and or there are penalty that penalties that put our back against the wall. I know he earned his contract last season, but is there any data that suggests our starting field position is below average? There is, and it's pretty easy to calculate. If you let the ball go into the end zone, you get it at the 25-yard line. If you return it, and you get to less than the 25-yard line, you're below average, for sure. I don't know exactly what the average is, but you're in a hole at the very least. So how far in a hole have the Packers been? Well, outside of one return, one return, where the Packers got a face mask penalty and got 15 yards tacked on to Keyshawn Nixon's return, they have been in the hole, as in, not reaching the 25-yard line on return on every single one of Keyshawn Nixon's 10 kickoff returns this year. He has never, if you look at gaining to the 25-yard line as the neutral point, has never this season in 10 returns set up the Packers with positive yardage on a kickoff return. It's been negative yardage each and every time. And as Nick points out here, there have been a couple penalties, two holding penalties, in fact, that has pushed the Packers back even further. So I think there needs to be a slight adjustment in philosophy on the Packers' kickoff returns unless they think they're against a really weak opponent or there's something that lets them believe that Keyshawn Nixon can either get it past the 25 or something like that. They need to stop returning it from so deep in the end zone and just start taking the free yards to the 25. Now, to be fair... Of the times when they've started with quote-unquote negative yardage outside of penalties, three, four of the ten, they've been down three yards or less. Three of them, they've been down just one yard, so he's getting out to the 25. Maybe with an all-pro kick returner, kickoff returner, you can take your your best shot there and say, hey, he might spring it to the 35 or 40 or something like that. That's fair, but there are other returns here where even prior to the, to the penalties, the Packers have been down nine yards, down seven yards, down eight yards, down five yards. It's not a lot, but it does add up over the course of the season. And the Packers are actually down 44 yards over the course of the 2023 season, just based on where Nixon has put them after his kickoff returns. Finally, a long simmering question from the very patient Eric Stats in our Discord server. Do you think an underrated story of the Packers the last two years is even the homegrown youngish quote-unquote stars that we are paying top of market for aren't performing as top five at their position type players? Bakhtiari, because of health, obviously, is one of those players, but Jair hasn't been consistently amazing. And I would argue, while Kenny Clark has been mostly very good, he hasn't exactly been a consistent game wrecker, though I think that's partially due to the high snap count we've been demanding of him. This is an interesting question, and I think the answer, unfortunately, is yes, because there are a few examples where the Packers have paid top-of-market deals for guys and haven't gotten top-of-market performance. For starters, Aaron Rodgers signed a big contract extension. The Packers did not get top-of-market performance from him after his most recent extension in Green Bay. It just wasn't there. Extenuating circumstances, sure, but at the end of the day, the Packers did not get what they paid for there. Same is true of David Bakhtiari. I don't have to explain to you why that is. But look at these other two examples that Eric passes along here, Jair Alexander and Kenny Clark. 
Alexander signed his extension prior to the 2022 season, and by average annual value, he has been the top-paid cornerback in the NFL in 2022 and 2023. There are different measures you could look at. You might want to look at something like total cash paid. If you're ranking guys, how much did they actually cost the Packers in terms of their prorated signing bonus and their salary for that particular year? That's fine if you want to do it this way. I just thought it was the easiest to just do average annual value and see where he ranks because then things can change over time as the the contract situation moves around you and as the cap goes up and stuff like that. So after he signed that deal for the, the next two seasons, for last year and for this year, he's been the top paid player in the league. So how does he compare to other corners in the NFL? At least according to Pro Football Focus, among players at his position who have played at least 50% of the maximum snaps in the league, Jair Alexander has ranked sixth in the NFL in overall cornerback grade, and so far this season, 40th in the NFL, not even among the top 32 starting starting cornerbacks in the NFL. The Packers are giving him a top-of-market salary. He is not giving them top-of-market performance. What about Kenny Clark? He signed an extension uh, ahead of the 2020 season. Since then, he has ranked 4th, 6th, 6th, and 11th in the NFL among defensive tackles, at least according to Spot Track, in average annual value of his contract. Where has he performed? Well, using the same threshold as with Alexander, guys who have played at least 50% of the snaps at the position over those years. Uh, Kenny has ranked 15th among defensive tackles, according to Pro Football Focus, 8th, 29th, and 38th. Packers are giving him essentially top 10 money, top 5 money in one season. He has been a top 10 player, at least according to Pro Football Focus, and there are some some warts to that process too. But he's only been a top 10 player, by their grades at least, in one of those four seasons where the Packers have been giving him easily top 10 money there. The only exception to this that I could find in Green Bay in recent history has been Aaron Jones, actually. He signed an extension prior to the 2021 season, and since then he has ranked 7th, 7th, and 6th in the NFL in average annual value among running back contracts. Among running backs in the NFL, according to Pro Football Focus, he has ranked 4th and 6th in 2021 and 2022. In 2023, he hasn't paid enough to, or played enough to get you know ranked among players that really matter. Uh, this season, but we've seen his importance to the Packers. Aaron Jones has paid off the Packers' investment in ways that their other top-of-market players have not. It's a big reason that I think the Packers aren't performing well this year. Their highly-paid players aren't playing like highly-paid players, except for Aaron Jones. So what's our big takeaway from all this? Well, I think there's only one inescapable conclusion. When you're thinking about who you want to extend, you've got to pay running backs and running backs only and forget about everybody else. That's all I've got for you on this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. That's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation that you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I've been your host, John Muerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.